Okay, here we go. Let's talk about Jesus Christ. We're in John chapter 11. For those of you who just joined in because you thought you'd take a quarter off the life of Christ and by the time you got back we would be done with it, surprise. Okay, we are still in it. We are in lesson 88 and we are now winding into the very last week of Jesus' ministry. With that is going to be the bulk of the Gospels are recording a lot of his Passion Week. So we are only covering probably about 60% of the Gospels is non-Passion Week and that's where we are just ready to enter into. We're right, right to that final week. Jesus Christ has been ministering the last few weeks in the Transjordan, other side of Jordan. He makes a trip into this region because of Lazarus. Okay, and so he comes close to Jerusalem as we're going to see this morning and then he has to get away from there and then he makes one last trip into Jerusalem. That's going to be his passion. So what happens during this time is Jesus has been teaching a lot of lessons. Talks about God's love through uh, those parables in Luke 15. Talks about the God's view of the wealthy through the rich man Lazarus. He is ta- teaching a whole lot of practical things with his disciples as he's winding down ministry with them. Talks about forgiving others, not stumbling, serving and being faithful. And around this time he gets news that Lazarus is very ill. And it comes from Lazarus' sisters. We read this last week. I'm not going to read through the whole passage. But remember for the last couple, two and a half, almost three and a half years, Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been healing a lot of sick people, uh, making food calming stores, b- storms, been doing it for perfect strangers. Now Lazarus it makes it very clear in, in Luke chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 11, that he is a close friend, verses 1 and 2, a very close friend of Jesus Christ. They send a message. Obviously they think if Jesus has been helping out strangers, he's going to help out his best friends. And so they let him know. Now Bethany, where Jesus is at, let's say this is Jerusalem. Jesus is not going near there. The last time he was in Jerusalem a few weeks ago, what did the people try to do as he taught? They picked up stones ready to stone him. So he went over to Transjordan, over into this region. If he's going to go back and visit Lazarus, he's going to get this close or so to uh, Jerusalem. Because Bethany, right outside Lazarus, uh, right outside Jerusalem, is where Lazarus and his family lives. And so the disciples... Uh, know that it's going to take a one, two-day journey. And uh, so Jesus, uh, they think he should hesitate. You read that in John chapter 11. When he says, we're going to go, they say, yeah, but we're going to die. Last time they tried to kill you. And so Jesus warns them. He is asked to return, and so he gets the message. Now, when he gets the message, he responds, which I think is an amazing response when you put it in its story. He says in verse 4, the sickness is not unto death. His implication, if the messenger takes back those exact words, is that last Lazarus is going to survive. Lazarus is not going to die, which is going to be a shock to the family. They'll have their high hopes, and then they'll get the response. They'll see that he dies. And so Jesus sends back a message, and then he tarries for a couple days. Doesn't go right away, but he tarries, and uh, according to verse 6, for two days. So by the time he gets there, it's day number four of Lazarus's death, at least day number four. And so that's when verse 7, he says, let us go on to Judea again. Remember, he waits two days, takes two days to get there. And then then what happens is the disciples remind him, verse 8, they try to kill you. We're going to go there? You, and he says, well, as long as I'm doing the will of God, walking in light, I'm fine. 
but if we walked in night, we could be hurt. And so then he says these things, and he says to them, verse 11, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go to wake him. They say, oh, if he's sleeping, he's doing well. Jesus responds and says, I'm I'm telling you that he's dead, but in a kind way. And then verse 15, he makes a comment that is confusing for a lot of people. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there for this purpose that you may believe. Now, they were already believed. They're born again. He's talking about building their faith, that they would grow in their faith. And our comments here are basically this, that Jesus, though he may have sound harsh, he is making this very serious statement. God allows trials to befall those he loves. We know that. He uses these serious situations to build up believers' faith. When God does not respond to our pleas, it is not insensitivity, um, but rather it's just the opposite. Jesus is doing something better for you. And so sometimes when he says no, sometimes when he says wait, it's for our benefit. He has our, our best in mind. It's an amazing story of the grace of God and the goodness of God. And so finally he is going to go. He goes, he's greeted, Martha comes, she hears, goes out by herself and she implies that it's too late when she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. Verse 21, she assumes that he would heal. That's a mistake. She's making the false assumption. And so he has to correct it. But then she says, even though he, she makes comment, I know that you can do all things, whatever God asks. She's exercising some faith here. Don't know exactly what she had in mind. But Jesus then responds to her, and he's going to comfort her with words of the resurrection. He talks about, I am the resurrection. I am not just the vessel, the vehicle, the conduit. I am the resurrection. Very, very clearly that he is making a claim that he is God. Okay, let's make some comments. Even though people of faith have great faith, they can be overwhelmed by the pain of death. We understand that. We know that. We see that. Some have experienced that. Let's make this comment. Jesus immediately reassured and comforted her at that time with thoughts of eternal life. And so that's very, very important because um, when you have gone through this. When you deal with other people who have gone through it. This week I heard from two people that made the comment as I was visiting and and trying to be of some uh, consolation to individuals who have recently gone through. The comment by two of the people was, I feel like half of me is gone. I feel like I'm, I'm cut in half and it's never coming back. And as they pointed out, they said, you know, even when we're apart, when we were both together alive, when we were apart, you know that you're going to see them. Now there's this indefinite separation, and it is really, really hard. So Jesus reassures her and, commend, uh, and comforts her by saying, listen, you will be together, and gives them thoughts of eternity. And so it's a clear claim that he is God. He is making it clear because the Jews believe only God can raise from the dead. And they've seen that with the prophets that were empowered by God, and so Jesus is clearly saying, I am Christ, I'm the one, and she says, I believe. I believe you are the Messiah. This has not taken away... Now, 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 let me, let me remind you, a few a year and a half or so earlier than this, there was the greatest man who was ever born, Jesus said. His name was John the Baptist. Did he have doubts about Jesus being the Christ? He did. He did. He said, are you the one or should we look for another? Remember when he said that? What was happening to him? 
He was in prison, he was in jail, and he was, he was going through some inner turmoil. Though he was a surrendered individual, he didn't understand what was going on. And so he had second thoughts. Here is Martha, who is a great believer. She wants to follow. She has her issues, which all believers do. And she says, I believe. This, this trial has not, has not caused me to doubt who you are, but I'm still struggling with just why didn't you come to my rescue earlier? And so she is exercising her faith. Now Jesus you know, go, is, continues on. They tell Mary who is in the house still grieving that Jesus is there. She goes out. Her friends, look at the story, her friends think she's headed for the graveyard. Okay, And she's just overwhelmed. And so they want to follow her. And so she meets Jesus. She says the exact same thing her sister says when she comes and meets Jesus in verse 29. Soon as she heard, she rose quickly, came to meet him. Jesus was not yet in town, but was still in the place where Martha was. She rose up. She goes to that, to that place. And when she sees him, verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus doesn't respond. He just starts himself being broken-spirited, broken-hearted, weeping. We talked about all the different possibilities why he wept, And so Jesus, this time, just he's, he's going to act. He's not going to say anything. And so he groans, he weeps, he's troubled. We get all kinds of information about him and his internal spirit and struggles. And he says, where have you laid him? They said, come and see. He goes, he weeps. And he, the Jews are looking and saying, oh, he really loves him. And some of them said, could not this man who caused the eyes of the blind, you know, open them up, he would have helped this man out. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself. We're getting a real strong story here that Jesus is bothered by the situation. It was a cave. A stone lay upon it. Jesus says, take away the stone. And so he's there. We understand the story. He calls for Lazarus to come forth. Now, Martha responds. And again, if you weren't with us last week, we talked about ancient burial customs of the Jewish people. Day number four, what did they do with the tomb? They buried day number one because they didn't embalm. Day number four... What did they do at the tomb site? Anybody remember? They sealed the tomb, okay? And the reason they left it open a little bit was because they thought the spirit of the dead person did not depart until day number four. Because now, day number four, he is really, absolutely, certainly dead. And not only is he dead, dead, but Martha's being very pragmatic about it. She said, he is starting to... Stink. Okay, decompose. Okay, we understand that. We, under, we know how that, that works. And Jesus says, roll it away. And then he calls forth Lazarus. And he says his name. And you've heard the story. You've heard it stated another time. It's a good thing he called out Lazarus. Otherwise, everyone else would have come forth as well. And so Jesus had that type of power. Lazarus comes forth. And when he comes forth, it is just an amazing story. Now, in your minds, remember, is this the very first time Jesus raised somebody from the dead? No, he has done it before. But this one is, is just a phenomenal story. It's during that time when he is under pressure and Jesus is, you know, he is, the height of discussion is all around him. And so the people who respond to this miracle, it's very important. Now notice how John adds a lot of detail. He says he's, he's come forth. And they, uh, he comes in verse 44. The dead man comes out. He's still bound. He says, loose him. And then we have from verse 45 down to the end of the chapter, we have a lot of detail of what followed. And the detail that they're giving us is the response of the people. You have this response, verse 45. Then many of the Jews which had come and seen, what did they do? 
They believe on him. Okay? So you have some people responding in faith. What else do you have for a response as you continue reading right there? What is the other people's response? Okay, some don't believe. What do they do instead? They go to the Pharisees and they tell everything that Jesus had done. Okay? Um, and that is because... They, they doubt him. And the Pharisees have already put out a warrant for Jesus' arrest. And so they, are, they go and tell the leaders that this is happening. The Jewish leaders have a choice. Now, by the way, let's, let's throw this. Do the Jewish leaders have multiple witnesses telling them it happened? Yeah, verse 46. They even have the naysayers giving documented evidence it happened. Right? Okay, documented evidence. What is different, um, the, the, think with me for a moment. What makes this miracle of raising Lazarus so much more pungent and potent than Jesus raising the widow's son in Nain? Four days. The four days. Okay? The raising of the widow's son of Nain was during what? The funeral procession which took what, uh, to place when? The same day the person passed away. So somebody who was a naysayer could say he wasn't really dead. What is proof here that he was really, really, really dead? Four days. Four days. Okay, very important. Four days. Okay, and that's, that's why Jesus even delayed to make sure we get to that point. And so this one is documented. There is no doubt. You look at the passage. They aren't saying it didn't happen. They aren't doubting that it happened. There is no doubt of the Pharisees when they hear about it because they're getting multiple witnesses. The Pharisees gathered the chief priests and Pharisees of council and they said, what do we do? Now look at verse 47. This is coming from his critics. What do they say at the end of verse 47? This man what? He does many miracles. They are not doubting his miracle ability. That's an important statement that they make. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and the nation. Who are they concerned about? Themselves, okay? And one of them said, You guys know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should what? He's got to die. He's got to die so that the whole nation doesn't perish. By the way, they're not concerned about the whole nation. Who are they concerned about? Yeah, exactly. When they say the whole nation, they say our power base is what they're talking about. And by the way, isn't that amazing that politicians back in those days would be more concerned about their power base and their control than they would the welfare of the people? Aren't you glad we live in a totally different age? Okay. Yeah, right. Okay. This spake he not of himself of being a high priest. He prophesied that Jesus should die. And not for that nation only, but that he should gather together and children, all, all the children. Then from that day forth, verse 53, what did they do? They took counsel together for to... Okay, now why are they saying, why did they put that there? Because go back to verse 47. Who becomes allies in verse 47? The Pharisees, the chief priests, okay? They are not political allies, Who's the chief priest represent? The Sadducees. This is worse than the Republicans and the Democrats trying to get along. Okay? This is the Sadducees and Pharisees. They do not agree on hardly anything except for this one thing. We want to remain in power. Jesus must die. 
Okay, and so they are, and I, and I think it's a phenomenal setting. They do not deny the miracle. So does this make them more guilty? In their, when you think about the historical base, they're not doubting it. They're not denying it. They have, and remember, in Jewish culture, what do you have to have for witnesses to verify something? Two or, yeah, and look at what it says. Highlight your Bible, verse 45, okay, or verse 46. Some of, the, of those people. There's more than two or three is the implication because there were so many people there. And so he's got to die. This is the point that Jesus now, they've been threatening, threatening, but now it is definitely there after him. Look at verse 54. Jesus therefore walked no more openly amongst the Jews, but went thence into, unto a country near the wilderness to what city? Ephraim, and he continues with his disciples. Okay, so remember, let's set up, this is Jerusalem. He got within just a couple miles of Jerusalem. War, you know, they're threatening, and now he goes not right back to where he was, Transjordan, but he heads up north. And when he heads up north, he's going to go to the border of Galilee and Samaria. That's where Ephraim is. So he's not fully in Samaria. He's not fully in Galilee. He's just on the border, but it's kind of no man's land. He's away from the power of Herod, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and it's kind of in this, in like I say, no man's land, in this, in this intermediate spot, okay? Not only are they after Jesus, but if you go down to chapter 12, in verse 10, it says the chief priests consulted that they have to do what with Lazarus? Why do they have to get rid of him? He's evidence, He's evidence. You've got to destroy the evidence. So we get rid of him. And so here's what we've known before we go any further. Jesus knows everything about us at all times. He knows Lazarus, the illustration. He knew Lazarus's well-being, his health issues, when he died, that he, you know, all of, all of the circumstances about him, Jesus knew uh, the condition. Let me give you another comment. Believers must not assume, this is for you and me, we must not assume Jesus will always take away any illness and spare us from the pains of death. That was Martha and Mary's mistake. If you had been here, you would have prevented this. That's not true. That is not true. And you and I should make sure we do not preach, do Bible studies, tell others that God will take away your problems. Okay? And shame on those preachers who preach that feel-good gospel. That's what people want to hear. But what are we warned about? In the latter days, people want their... Ears tickled. We got to stay to the truth that Jesus does not have to operate for our happiness. He operates for our holiness and for our growth. And that might include going through the pains of death. We must not think Jesus is limited in any way by space or distance. The reason I say that is the sisters make a mistake. They make this comment. If you had been here, this would not have happened. What's the phrase that was the mistake? If you would have been here. In other words, you had to be here to be able to do something. That's not true. Could Jesus do long-distance miracle? Yeah. And can he work long-distance today? Absolutely. Very, very important truth. Number, number uh, four thought. Death does not limit or hinder Jesus. Okay. Important, uh, important thought. Death means the end for you and me. We feel like it's the end. We want it to be the end. It doesn't hinder the work of Jesus Christ. Let's go on to number five. Okay. We must remember that death can be good in that it can be used to glorify God. Okay? Death is a, it comes from where? Its, it's, its source is evil. 
Where does death arise from? Sin. Okay, we understand that. But can God use consequences of sin for good? Sure he can. It doesn't mean that he introduced the sin, but can he use consequences? Okay, let me rephrase this. Your kids disobey you. They do something bad. Can you use the consequences to teach them for something good? Yes, you can. But does that mean, therefore, you are responsible for introducing the sinful behavior? No, not at all. Not at all. You tell your kid, you know, if you climb up there and start walking across the top of the sofa, you could fall and you could get hurt seriously. They don't listen to you because they're invincible and you're an idiot in their mind. Okay? So they walk across the sofa, they fall down, they bang their head. And you are going to say to them, you know, sorry, honey, that's bad. You're going to comfort them. But you're going to use this to try to teach them a lesson. Just because you're using it doesn't mean you're responsible for putting them on the couch. Does it make sense? Okay, same thing. People often say, well, God allows all the struggles and trials in our life. He's responsible for sin. That's not true. But he can use the consequences to do some good. So we remember that death can be used for some good, even though God didn't introduce it. It was man who introduced death into the world for the first Adam that did that. By one man, sin came into the world, and by, sin, and by that sin came death. We understand that God can use death in a phenomenal way. How so? How does he use death in a good way? In this story, there's two, there's two illustrations. People can get saved through somebody's death. Does that ever happen? Yeah, yeah, it really does. Number two. For believers, they can, be, they can be strengthened. I am glad for your sakes I was not there. So we have the souls getting saved. We have the building of the faith of saints. That can happen in our lives, even through death. Does it hurt? Yes. Do, is it something we long for? Absolutely not. Does the Lord go through it with us? Absolutely. Is he able to prevent it? We know that. Does he choose to prevent it? Not all the time, because he knows this could be the best teaching time and tool in our lives. And so that's the grace and the knowledge and the wisdom of our omniscient God that we worship. Let's do another one. This miracle proves Jesus has the power to reverse death. Now, this is an important thought. He could have healed to Lazarus. True, false. When he got that message, could he have said, Lazarus, be healed? Yes, he's done it before from long distance. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he proves he could do even something greater than heal a sickness. He recovered somebody from certain death. That's a phenomenal display of power. This miracle substantiates Jesus' claim when he says in this story, I am the resurrection of the life. It is substantiated by what he has done. Now watch with me what I'm getting at here. Okay? He, can, he is going to prove that he has the ability to raise up bodies one day in the future. Bodies where they are already what? What's, what's Lazarus' body doing? Okay, it's decaying. He can put life in, in decay, Right? Okay, that's, a, that's what he's getting at. It's an object lesson that he can resurrect dead, 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 dead bodies. That's an important thought, okay, for us who say, is it going to happen? It can happen. He will glorify the bodies. Now, he doesn't do it here in, with Lazarus. This is a resuscitation, not a resurrection. How do we know that? Because Lazarus still dies, okay, for a, a permanent death. This is more of that resuscitation, but it still shows he has the power to bring life 
uh, to where there is death. And one day he's going to glorify our bodies when we have the resurrection. He has the power to one day end all pain, all disease. This is our hope. This is our help. This is our comfort that we understand that Jesus has this ability. Because of him, death is only temporary. Okay. By the way, how many people in this room are terminal? All of us. We are all terminal. Some may be going to the doctor and find out your terminal situation is more imminent than the rest of us. But we're all terminal. And the idea is that we are going to die, but death is only temporary. And it's scary. It's because this is what we know. But in a hundred and a thousand and a million years from now, we'll look back and say it was such a short experience. It was so minuscule in the light of all eternity. Here is the most potent statement from this entire story. This is the capstone of the entire resurrection story of Lazarus that you and I must understand. He's a qualified Savior. He qualifies as the Messiah by doing this miracle. How many people saw it and accepted that he did the miracle? Everyone who was there, a lot of them. There was crowds there, remember? He does this. Then even the Pharisees and Sadducees are not doubting that he has that ability. They are not doubting. They are rejecting. They are choosing to say, I don't want you. That's the amazing part of this whole story. This is a blatant rejection of absolute evidence in your face. Not doubt, but knowing concentrated rejection of Christ. That's what makes the next week or week so absolutely horrendous is they choose to reject Jesus Christ. In fact, what do they say? We want who? Barabbas. It's an absolute rejection. So it's a phenomenal story. Here's something else that's important for us. He provides an example how we help those people who are grieving in death. If you just take the simple story and just forget the doctrinal significance of the story, which is the criteria, but if you just say, okay, what did Jesus do in this story that we can do to help people who are going through a death situation? What did he do? He comforts them. Okay. Okay. How, how does he comfort them? He weeps with them. Wow. Okay. He feels their pain. Okay. What else? Pardon me? Okay. He talks about that, does he not? Doesn't he focus on the comfort of the hope that there's life after death? What else does he do? Be really simplistic. He goes there. He shows up. Okay. What does that say to you? If you're Mary and Martha, what does that say to you? He cares. He shows up when he can. Is that important when people are grieving? Okay, do we have to say a whole lot? No. Not necessarily. He says something to, you know what's interesting? It's this, just throw this out. Which one of the ladies does he talk to? Martha. What does he say to Mary? Nothing. Who had been listening to him before? Okay, did she need as much? No, she already got it. Because remember, she's the one that washes his feet and all those types of things. She gets he's the resurrection. The one that had been too busy, he spends a little bit of time. Point is that he shows up, he gives words of comfort, anything else that he does practically. We can't do it, but he does something for them. I guess I said it already. He does something. Okay, he meets their need. Okay, 
Uh, just leave it in a broad sense. That in this case, he resurrects Lazarus, or resuscitates him. We can't. But can we meet physical needs of people? Sure. That is really, really helpful. So there's lots of things we can put up here, you know, to go to them, to express the sympathy, to relate to them, remind them of the future, provide some assistance. Those are practical ways we can help somebody who's going through grieving. Now, here's the problem. We don't like funerals. True? False? Okay. We would just as soon avoid them. Okay. But are they a part of our life? They really are. And a part of our ministry to one another? That's true. That's true. And so we have to follow the example of Jesus Christ that says we need to provide assistance, help, uh, time, comfort, just showing up. That's all important. Let's move on. Right after this, now we, let's, let's set up our story. Jesus is on the run. Okay, because they have determined. He's going to go where I said he's in no man's land. He's not up in Galilee, which is the choir loft. He's not in Samaria. He's kind of like here, right on this modesty rail. He's in that in-between place. He stops at Ephraim. By the way, I don't know, you don't know, nobody knows. How long is he at this town, Ephraim? We're within a week or two of Passover. We're within a real short period. We don't know if it's there for a night, a day, three or four days. We don't know, but he's there. He, um, he goes there, and some conclude because he doesn't want to go all the way into Galilee because Herod is on the hunt for him. doesn't want to go south of Samaria because the Jews are on the hunt to them. And so he stays there. And then, according to Luke chapter 17, which we're headed for now, Luke chapter 17, and maybe you want to write in here in your Bible that uh, between chapters 11 and 12 of John, Luke 17, verse 11 and following, because we take a break right here. Luke, uh, John chapter 12 picks up in his last week, okay? But there's some time in between there. That time is recorded in Luke, okay? So let's head there. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. It came to pass as he went to Jerusalem... He passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, and he entered into a village. So he's in no man's land, and so now what he's going to do is he's going to head for Jerusalem because it is what feast on the horizon? In, a, in just a matter of days, the feast of Passover. Okay, he's got to go there. And so he's going to go into Galilee and kind of circle around, go a little bit into Transjordan, Samaria, and work his way down... It seems to Bible scholars that he went into Galilee and joined pilgrims who were headed now and would take these routes down from Galilee into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So he's joining other worshipers on the trip from Ephraim down towards where he's going to end up in Bethany and have supper at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In about a week, he's going to have supper there. She's going to anoint his feet. There's going to be that whole setting and situation, and she does it out of appreciation. You all know that, and I recognize it. He's going to, in the meantime, he's going to teach. He's going to talk. He's going to do a lot of things in route. And so in route, one of the, one of the ministries that he does, and they're all very open, they're very public. It's his last hurrah before he gets to Jerusalem. He's going to do a lot of instruction. One of the groups that happens is on the way he comes into a certain village. We don't know what village it is, but it says that all of a sudden he's met by a group of lepers. And that's where we have Luke chapter 17, which you all know this story. And for me to just rehearse, it seems you know, mundane because your memory is so much better than mine. But it says, there met him 10 men that were lepers. Now I want to point out a few things. Verse 12, where did the lepers stay? It says very clearly in Luke 17, verse, verse 12. They stood afar off. What's that tell you about those lepers? What were they doing? Is that the law? 
Yes. So these guys are following the rules, the culture, the custom of the day. Yes? Okay, they're following the law. And so they are doing what, what Jesus had done. Now, remember, Jesus has healed lepers. That's going to give them the incentive. His reputation has been spreading for the last year and a half to two, year, two and a half years. And so they're abiding by the law. They're staying away. They're holding their own, and they're yelling for Jesus. And now what's interesting, normally Jews and, and uh, Samaritans, they would not be together. But these guys are in the depth of crises. And so the Samaritans and the Jews, who are all lepers, they're all standing together. Normally, they wouldn't do that. But, you know, misery loves company. Okay, and so they're all in the same boat. They have a commonality that supersedes their ethnicity. It's their desperate situation. And so there they are, and Jesus responds. Now, watch the story and don't misunderstand the story. Jesus says to them, when he saw them, go show yourselves to the priests. Why does he tell them to do that? The law says so. Why in the law were they supposed to go and show themselves to the priest? The priest would declare whether or not you're clean. They would do medical, physical research, evidence, and look for evidences. By the way, the Samaritan is part of this group. He's going to go to the priest too. And so Jesus tells them, okay, now look at the, look at the flow of the story. Look at the passage. When were they healed? On their way. They weren't healed when he said, go show yourself. They still aren't healed. What does that tell you about these men? Pardon me? They have faith. There is, an, there is some substance of faith in this story. They don't wait until the healing. They start. And as they go, they are cleansed. And so Luke is making the details very clear that these fellows are on their way, then they're cleansed. And so they're doing, what, they're doing exactly what Jesus has told them. And as they go, okay, he is, you know, here, here's the important part. He is giving more facts to the, to the leaders of the Jews. They're going to go to Jerusalem, show themselves to the priests. They're going to make, they're going to make some research. They're going to say, you have been healed of the worst disease of the time. And by the way, in that day, what disease did they pick to represent sin? Leprosy. It was a common, it was a common analogy. Jesus is giving one more evidential fact to the Jewish leaders that he has or is what? He's God. He has the power. He can do it. So, again, he's just he's piling it on the Jewish leaders. Okay? Now, we all know what happens here. Okay? As they went, they're, they're told this act of obedience. By the way, does this ever happen in scriptures with anybody else that you can think of with leprosy? That the healing took place as they did it, they followed in obedience. Okay, that lady, she had, well, um, yeah, he tells her to worship. Let's go farther in the Old Testament. Naaman. Naaman in the Old Testament is Jew or Gentile? He's a Gentile. He is told to do what in order to be healed of his leprosy? Okay, go bathe in that, in that super clean, non-polluted Jordan River. Okay, which looks, the Jordan River then looked like the Swati now. Okay. You, would, you typically wouldn't want to go in because of everything else that's in there. When does his leprosy depart? After he dips himself 
seven times, okay, after his act of obedience. Then the leprosy departs. And so same thing here. After they start moving, okay, they're not healed right away, but as they go. Only one turns around because he notices his leprosy is gone. I'm sure they all do, okay? And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and does what? With, look at verse 15. Luke gives you details. Luke is always, he's, you know, he's like, he doesn't just tell you the story. He gives you a lot of little details. What does he want you to understand? A loud voice. Why do you think he wants, he records that? It's not just because he needed to fill in space. He's not like you and me with a term paper at college. Okay. That I got to elongate this thing by just, you know, putting in. Some of you are looking at me odd. Didn't you do this in college? Just expand, become verbose. Okay. Why does Luke say this? He's accenting this guy's faith, this guy's appreciation, this guy's enthusiasm, this guy's, you know, he is so excited, okay, that they, you know, that they were doing it. With a loud voice, he glorifies God. He fell down on his face at Jesus' feet and giving him thanks. He's a Samaritan, okay, that's all highlighted. And Jesus says to this man, I, I think this is an important question he asks. Where's the other ten? Okay. Were there not ten of you? Where's the other nine? Okay. I, I don't get this. The only one who comes back to thank me is a... What's your Bible read? Okay. He's the Samaritan. What's he call him? The stranger. The foreigner. Foreigner. Some of you... That's the, that's the translation. That's the idea. Okay. And so this man turned... Here's our point. Jesus expected the others to have returned to give thanks and glory. Jesus expects this response. That's, an, that's just an important thought for you and me. The only one to return is the Samaritan, the stranger. Uh, it's sometimes translated foreigner, pagan, heathen. It, those are the different translations in the New Testament. Okay. The point is, Jesus ministers to all groups. That's what Luke is getting at. And as well, here is an interesting thought that, that Luke records. The Samaritans often show greater spiritual sensitivity than the Jews. Why is that? Because they didn't grow up with it. But can, can we make an analogy? Sometimes the people that take salvation the most for granted are who? Not, not necessarily. Not necessarily the worst people in the world. Okay. The ones who grew up with it. The ones who always had it nearby. Okay. Because they don't appreciate where they could be. Is that true? Okay, that's truism. Okay, and so here are the Samaritans who have been the worst people in the world. They are, he's responding because he is now in this fold that is an absolute amazing thing to him. And this man, now Jesus makes a comment to this man. This is an important thought. He says in verse 19, go your way, your... Now this is the first indication that we have more than a physical cleansing. Your faith has made what? Okay, so not only does he receive physical cleansing and healing what's the implication they're spiritual as well okay because of his worship of jesus christ there's going to be that 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 spiritual cleansing the others would be declared outwardly cleansed by the priests the samaritan is declared inwardly cleansed by jesus christ which one would you rather have yeah by, by the way are both of these good they're both good they're both good but which one is the best the Samaritan. Okay, being fully cleansed by Jesus Christ. Let's make some analogies and some applications. Jesus can heal the worst of diseases. He took care of... Now remember, in the sequence of events, he has just taken care of death. 
Now he takes care of the worst sinful, the, the most terminal illness that they would know at that time. He's showing power, power, power. He's just, he's, you know, he's dropping power all over the place. He expects, you know, this is an important thought for you and me. He expects us to appreciate what he has done and not, watch the key words here. He not only expects, expects appreciation, he expects us to express that. To express it. Okay. Does he know the Samaritan's heart? Did he know the Samaritan was thrilled? Yes, but he wanted the Samaritan to still show it. Yeah, that's an important thought. We should cultivate an attitude of gratitude in our lives and that of our families. The reason I say this is because according to Romans chapter 1, we are by nature, all of us, with our sin nature, we are what type of people? It relates to this whole story. Do you remember the, the phrase? We are un thankful. It is a part of our sin nature. Okay? And we understand that. Did you have to teach your children to say, say thank you? Okay, we did. Now, some of them even, they gravitate towards it more and more, but by nature, that's not our, that's not our attitude. Yeah, okay? Our nature is when we get, we want more and we take it for granted. So you and I need to really work on this and even in our homes. Like Jesus, here's a challenge for you and me. Like Jesus, we should minister to all classes of people. That's a challenge, okay? Even the Samaritan. He knew he was a Samaritan. This is no, remember, Jesus knows everything. And so he's using it. He ministers to all classes, even lepers who are the outcasts. Jesus reaches out to them. And that's not easy. That's not easy. We were, uh, we were spending some time together as a family a couple weeks ago, and we were at a spot and it was a children's area, and there was somebody who was operating the game that the children were playing. When we walked up, we made this comment. We said, ooh, there's something in the water here. Something is not pleasant. There's an, there's an odor here. And it dawned upon us after a couple minutes, it wasn't the surroundings. It was the person who was operating the device. That the person was, you know, they just, they looked like they had physical difficulties. And the individual, they had bad, 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 really bad body odor. To the point that you could see a lot of people doing what? You know, pulling out the handkerchiefs and kind of walking to the other side of this area. Okay? That's all of us. That's our normal response. Okay? To just get away and to stay away. You know, and, to, and yet Christ would, would, by example, say, okay, let's, let's not let body odor deter trying to be gracious. And so it's a difficulty. We, we understand that. Like Jesus, this to me is the challenge more than anything else. Like Jesus, we should minister to even those who are not as grateful as they should be. Are there, are there certain groups of people, types of people, who no matter what you do, they don't say thank you? They assume it? Okay, if you if you are in that spot, whether it be a coworker, a family, a neighbor, what is your mind after a period of time say to you? I don't want to do anything for those people. Okay, now I, I know that sounds horrendous. Okay, after a while, it's like I'm being used, and I don't want to do anything for them because they don't seem to appreciate it. Okay? And again, I might be the only one in the room, but I don't think so. I think that is a tendency. And so me, I have to keep on reminding myself, Jesus ministers to people who he knew ahead of time they would not be grateful. Okay? As a parent, you need to remember that. Okay? 
Uh, we need to remember that in co-workers that we still show that love of Christ no matter what. So there's more here. He's going to get into a number of topics. As he's moving, he's healed the ten lepers. He is going to start moving along. We don't know, what, what's, we don't know where he's necessarily at, but we know this. As he's traveling along with the pilgrims, he is going to do a lot of teaching. He's going to talk to his disciples. He's going to talk to others who are with him. Crowds are going to know that he is part of this pilgrimage. He's going to be confronted as he comes into Jericho. There's a wee little man that climbs up in a sycamore tree. This part of this whole parade towards Jerusalem, that pilgrims that he's with, all of a sudden the crowd starts growing, and people who see a crowd, they gravitate to find out what's going on. And Jesus is going to teach, teach, teach. He's going to do miracles. There's a lot there. Let's not open up a new spot. Let's get ready for worship instead.